It's the 29th of April, 2022. This is the Room Now podcast. Hi, I'm Dr. Jack Cush, executive editor of RoomNow.com. This week, we don't have a lot, but what we have, we're going to have fun with. We're going to end with a, another case from you, the listener, in our segment called Ask Cush Anything. And you can find that on the website and on the email. You can click on that and you can record your case, your question from me. I'll answer it here on the podcast. So today I want to give you a big reminder. Rheumatology is a gigantically popular industry and you're a major player in it. Think about this. In the United States, there's only 5,000 rheumatologists and not all of you are practicing. Many of you are actually research or semi-retired or whatever. But nonetheless, there's very few thousands of rheumatologists who are the prescribers in this marketplace. Oh, the marketplace is what, 65, no, no, 58 million people with arthritis of one kind or another. More importantly, the report I'm now mentioning is the size of the therapeutic drug market. It's currently a $30 billion industry. Guess what? This is only going to go up. It's going to go up to $40 billion in the next, what is it? four years, five years. So I want you to know this because you command a small number of you, rheumatologists, command ex- ex- an exceptional amount of control over that $40 billion industry. You're the one people go to when it comes to using these drugs, knowing who should get them, who shouldn't get them. This gives you leverage. It may not give you leverage with your your chairman or your division director or your institution, but in the world of um, therapeutics and medicine, you're gigantically important to the tune of $30 billion and counting. A nice study from uh, Spain looked at pregnancy outcomes in systemic sclerosis. I don't know where you find this kind of data, 154 pregnancies in patients with systemic sclerosis, and they looked at the outcomes between 2008 and 2019. The main outcome is what they called adverse pregnancy outcomes, APOs, and that include a lot of things and would include malformations. There were none, but it does include things like miscarriages, preeclampsia, um, intrauterine growth retardation, whatever. In this study, which just looked at the outcomes, Um, they had a much higher rate of adverse pregnancy outcomes in the scleroderma patients. The number was 61% versus 10% in a matched healthy control population. The adverse pregnancy outcomes we're talking about are like what we've seen in RA and lupus and other inflammatory diseases, meaning a slightly higher number of miscarriages, preeclampsia, small for gestational age, and preterm births. This is not a horrible thing, but they are adverse outcomes nonetheless. And the magnitude that was seen in this cohort seems to be, uh, to me, alarmingly high. So again, managing patients with scleroderma has got to be like managing patients with lupus. Don't go into it unless you're well-controlled. Um, and then disease control may be the most important thing you can do for the mother and the baby going forward. A nice review in Annals of Rheumatic Disease comes from a lot of the big leaders in the world of rheumatology, Tom Heisinga, Johannes Bilsma, Renee Westhovens, Joe Smolin, and others 
who did a systemic literature review of the use of steroids as bridge therapy in RA to see basically how good are we at using bridge therapy, which if we're good, that means we're getting off of steroids at some point, does it not? Well, they had 10 studies and they looked at them, only four of them where they randomized controlled trials with protocolized discontinuation schemes for going off steroids. And in those studies, 12 months after starting bridge therapy, 22% of patients were still taking steroids. Is that a good number or not? It's kind of good, meaning almost 80% got off steroids, but there's still 20% who didn't. They didn't tell you about the unprotocolized, um, not systematically studied patients where we know, um, despite our best efforts and best intentions, we do need to work harder at getting patients off of steroids, especially as we put them on more complex regimens, presumably to steroid spare. A nice study was uh, published about cardiovascular risk in psoriasis and psoriatic arthritis patients. This comes from southern Brazil, where they basically looked at the Framingham risk scores as an um, indicator of cardiovascular risk. We know there's a lot of comorbidity in psoriatic disease overall, and this confirms that. Basically, when they compared all the psoriatic patients, both skin and joint patients, or both, they had a higher Framingham risk score, 16.3, compared to an age match healthy control population, 10.6. And that was significant. And the Framingham risk score does increase with age. This is a reminder that comorbidity management is gigantically important for all of our diseases, but especially for psoriatics where it seems to be a big problem. And you know, we've covered that this past week with all our coverage on psoriatic arthritis. In the last week, the FDA has gone out and approved a new drug for COVID-19. And notably, this is in kids. So, and when I say kids, over one month or older qualifies you uh, and the age bracket that you should get that. They approved the, the use of Velcuri, of Vecluri. I always want to say Velcuri, but it's Vecluri, which is remdesivir. Um, as an expanded indication, now all the way down to 28 days old, greater than 3 kilograms, uh, and you have SARS-CoV-2 and are hospitalized, or it can be given to patients not hospitalized who are at high risk for severe COVID outcomes, including death. Um, this is good, but honestly, I'm not really impressed by the remdesivir data. Remdesivir only looked great when it was combined with baricitinib. Um, so, uh, I think that there are going to be better ways uh, of managing COVID going forward. Should we need to patients with mild to moderate disease, not yet hospitalized, probably going to do well with the, is it the Pfizer drug, uh, Paxlovid. I mean, that looks really, really good. And as we talked about last week, the pre-exposure prophylaxis in high risk people, um, that seems to work well as all well. that's with, um, um, uh, I'm blanking on the name right now, but look at last week's podcast. Uh, a review of combined clinics between dermatology and rheumatology looked at the experience in Greece where they followed 151 psoriasis patients in a combined clinic and they evaluated those patients who had, the, uh, this 151 had musculoskeletal symptoms. They called them suspicious musculoskeletal symptoms. I'm not sure what the designation there really means. But the important point is by having combined clinic, they led to a faster diagnosis. 85% of those 151 with joint complaints actually had psoriatic arthritis, which is surprising. And in 62% of these, psoriasis was first di- psoriatic arthritis was diagnosed for the first time. So 
again, there's a lot to be said. If you have the luxury of having a combined um, psoriasis um, uh, dermatology arthritis clinic, um, that would be great for your psoriatic patients. I don't know if you're bothered by the management of irritable bowel syndrome. It seems to complicate a lot of what we do. Is it IBS? Is it IBD? It shouldn't be a hard distinction, but their management is much more difficult than their diagnosis. Uh, I found an interesting study in a GI journal. This is neurogastroenterology uh, study of PCP-diagnosed uh, irritable bowel syndrome, IBS. 459 patients randomized to either use of an oral antispasmodic agent or something called FODMAP. This is a dietary restriction, and the FODMAP diet is a diet that's low in certain sugars. FODMAP stands for fermentable oligosac... Let me start over. Fermentable oligosaccharides, disaccharides, monosaccharides, and polyols, and that you get a better response with diet, 71% versus 61%, significant at the P.03 level. And again, patients who did well had better adherence to the diet. The question is, what in the world is a FODMAP diet and how do I prescribe it? Well, go to like the, any the Mayo Clinic website and you'll find out what a FODMAP diet is. It is a diet that's lower in these short-chain carbohydrate sugars um, that the gastrointestinal tract does not absorb well and leads to all the symptoms, cramping, diarrhea, constipation. So a, a FODMAP diet are diets that are low in dairy-based products, wheat products, beans, lentils, vest, certain vegetables, artichokes, asparagus, yeah, I don't like those at all, garlic, certain fruits, apples, cherries, pears, and peaches, um, and instead base your diet on other things that you can eat, eggs and meat and almond milk and certain grains and, and whatnot and certain fruits. So that's a FODMAP diet and it seems to work quite well in patients who have irritable bowel syndrome. Congratulations. I don't know if you saw this study that we posted yesterday um, and that is, you know, we all have problems with Zoom. Now, listening, to, listening and watching me is certainly a hazard, is it not? So um, a nature study looked at the... Um, Plus side, downside of video conferencing, especially when it came to ideas, uh, mainly, mainly collaboration, right? So a well-designed study, you can look at it, it's published in Nature. It basically showed the, shows that video conferencing has a downside in that it impairs idea generation or creativity, mainly because it focused the communicators on the screen, which you don't have to do when you're face-to-face. -face, and by being face-to-face, -face, you, your focus and the interaction is obviously different. Um, nonetheless, um, the virtual interactions did somewhat improve um, decision-making um, when two people were involved. So uh, there might be a narrower focus of thought when you're on, on camera. You know, the reason why people don't like Zoom is because you have to look at yourself. I would recommend getting on, setting your camera up, and then setting up your camera so you don't have to see yourself. That doesn't mean turning off your camera. It just means you turn it away from you, okay? Or the screen turned away from you, okay? Uh, and that makes it a much more value. You, you need to see other people, but you don't necessarily need to see yourself because then you're thinking, gee, these glasses don't look good on me. I, I'm no, I, what am I going to do with my hair? And look at the eyebrows. My God, it's, they're all over the place. Anyway, that's the problem with Zoom. What's that got to do with rheumatology? Well, 
you're all becoming zoomatologists. I like this report from the Mayo Clinic that we appeared this week about um, arthritis being a bad biomarker in patients with biopsy-proven HFE-positive hemochromatosis. A study of 112 patients who had um, hemochromatosis diagnosed by biopsy, proven by genetics, and when they showed that, you know, I think overall there was about 20% of the patients had hepatic fibrosis um, and whatnot, but having um, th stage three to four hepatic fibrosis, 84% uh, of those people actually had arthritis associated with hemochromatosis. Yet of the people who didn't have arthritis, which was the majority, only 5% had advanced hepatic fibrosis. I found this interesting because now this means if I have a, if I'm seeing a patient with hemochromatosis and I think their arthritis is due to it, I've never done this before, but now I'm going to send them back to the liver doctor and say, you might want to recheck their liver. You may want to do a biopsy because they're at higher risk. Now this is a single center, modest sized cohort. Maybe this needs to be improved, but I thought this was really impressive. Again, a sevenfold higher risk of advanced hepatic fibrosis if you have arthritis related to hemochromatosis. If you don't, then there's a, a negative predictive value that's really quite high, 95%. Uh, you might want to look into that. Um, I want to remind everybody that next Tuesday, the 3rd of May, we're going to continue Tuesday Night Rheumatology, this time with a replay and a discussion of the Room Now Live pod or session on rheumatoid arthritis therapies. I'll be lecturing on treatment choices in refractory RA, my novel approach to refractory RA. How do you look at it? Caleb Michaud is going to talk about adherence to rheumatoid therapies, a big problem. And Ernest Choi from the UK is going to talk about precision medicine. But before we go, let's go and do a caller question. This is Dr. Elisir. Hi, Jack. Um, my name is Haitam. I'm a rheumatologist. Um, um, a quick question. Um, oftentimes, um, you uh, receive patient referred by the GP with uh, non-specific joint pain, um, no inflammatory features, CRPs mildly uh, raised, serology is negative, uh, nothing to find in clinical examination, uh, x-rays of joints are normal. Um, the um, GP refers the patient um, with a question uh, of inflammatory arthritis based on a good response to uh, prednisone. Um, my question is, would you use um, response uh, to steroids um, to predict that the patient has um, inflammatory uh, arthritis? Um, thank you very much, Jack. Thanks, Haitham. Um, first off, we love your questions. And many thanks to Dr. Elisir for sending this very common scenario in. Um, number one, response to prednisone means absolutely nothing to me. Absolutely nothing. Meaning, I mean, it happens so often, it can't mean anything. But certainly if you give pulse steroids and someone's seizing with lupus cerebritis and they stop seizing, congratulations, that's a great thing. But we're really talking about the widespread indiscriminate use of steroids as being some kind of decider of something. And it's not um, an arbiter of whether you have inflammatory disease or not. So in this situation, arthralgias, a modestly elevated CRP, it truly means absolutely zero. Such a patient, would I do further testing? 
because the CRP was modestly elevated, uh, the patient has arthralgias and got better. I wouldn't. Many of you, I believe, would. But I think the yield on that is incredibly low. I think this patient requires observation and symptomatic management. Arthralgias, we're going to manage that with arthralgia medicines, which is analgesics, simple analgesics, and nothing more. And maybe see the patient a few times to make sure that they don't have swollen joints. Tell them to take pictures of their joints if they think they are swollen and bring it to the next visit. I think the issue here is what do you do with someone who has an elevated SED rate but not CRP, an elevated CRP but not SED rate? This is a common scenario. Um, and the vast majority have no explanation at all. The ACP put out guidelines about this back in like 1984 that basically said that an elevated sporadic uh, one-time elevation seldom means serious disease. Now, of course, if it's 120, it probably does mean serious disease, but we're talking about usually levels that are, you know, less than two times the upper limit of normal. And, um, and so what do I do in those people? I ask about other signs and symptoms. Obviously, this was done. I look at the other labs. The CBC and, this, and the chemistry profile can tell you if inflammation is in play. Elevated Y-count, thrombocytosis, anemia, chronic disease. An elevated um, RDW is a good measure of inflammation. Um, a, hypoalbumine, a hypoalbuminemic patient may obviously have an elevated or CRP. So those are clues that then I would do further testing and I would do further investigations. Otherwise, I'm asking for and looking for focal symptoms, focal bone pain, nighttime fevers, you know, shortness of breath, chronic cough. I might do other things like a, an SPEP or a chest X-ray or certainly a UA. The more, expensive, the more expensive stuff is done way after the cheaper stuff like the UA. And then if there's focal pain and this kind of uh, thing, uh, I mean, monarticular, single spot focal pain, I'll usually do imaging to look for bony tumors and, th and that sort of thing. So no, I wouldn't do uh, use prednisone in a diagnostic way here. I would do rely more on my history and physical and observation over time. Anyway, we encourage you to send us more questions in Ask Kush Anything. Um, we'll see you at Tuesday Night Rheumatology. Thanks for watching and listening to the podcast.